Bonjour. Welcome back to the podcast that every week tries to explain what the hell is going on on this very complicated continent. This is Katie in Paris. Uh, who are you? I am Dominic in Amsterdam. And there's been a lot going on this week. It's been one of those weeks again. It has been one of those weeks. Uh, what's been happening over there in Amsterdam? Oh, nothing here particularly, actually. <laughs> I've been more focused on what's happening in the UK where the government seems to be like deliberately tanking the economy. Yeah. Yay. It's sort of weirdly fascinating to watch and very painful at the same time. I'm sort of half getting the popcorn out and half crying. Yeah. I read a really good tweet this week that said, there are decades when nothing happens and then there are weeks where decades happen and then there are decades full of weeks where decades happen. (laughs) This is one of those decades. Yeah, it kind of summed up the feeling of living through the past few insane years. But hey, the Europeans podcast is a stable thing. Nothing happening here, just a regular episode. And this week, we're going to be talking about something, another big thing that happened in Europe, in Italy. You've probably heard by now that Italy had an election last weekend that was won by the far-right party Brothers of Italy, allowing them to go into government with other parties in the right-wing bloc and probably installing Giorgia Meloni as Italy's first female prime minister. It's one of those elections that journalists refer to as a political earthquake, even if it was in this case a somewhat predicted political earthquake. But the fact that Italy will have a far-right leader is extraordinary and pretty terrifying for many reasons. So this week we had to call up someone Italian to find out why this happened and what it means for Italy and Europe as a whole. We'll be joined by the Italian philosopher Lorenzo Marsili later on in the show to find out more about what happened. But first, it's time for... Who has had a good week, Dominic? It's been a good week for a person in Spain this week, a person who wasn't a person last week, but this week is now legally a person, but not actually a human being person. (laughs) This person who has had a good week is a saltwater lagoon. Do I sound like I've lost my mind? A little bit, yeah. Well, I haven't, and neither have the Spanish legislators who granted the Mar Menor, this huge saltwater lagoon in the Iberian Peninsula, legal personhood. The move is the result of a massive campaign over many years backed by 640,000 people to protect this body of water that is in grave ecological danger. It's an area that was declared back in 2016 as being close to ecological collapse. That year, the water had turned green with algae and 85% of the seagrass died. In 2019, thousands of dead fish washed up on beaches along the lagoon due to a lack of oxygen in the water. And a similar event happened in 2021. Why why has all this stuff been happening? Uh, It's a combination of things. Poor sewage systems in the surrounding towns means that lots of sewage is making its way into the water. There's discharge from mining activities uh, and the increased length and frequency of heat waves is also not helping. But much of the damage seems to be down to nitrates, ammonium and phosphates from fertilizers used in agricultural land near the lagoon, which is seeping its way into the water and causing this thing called eutrophication, which is a process by which an entire body of water experiences an excessive growth of algae and bacteria, which deprives the water 
water of oxygen. Mm-hmm. And according to the Spanish government, they suspect that 8,000 hectares of land around the Mar Menor have been used without proper permits by agricultural companies, including the installation of hundreds of desalinization machines, which then cause brine and these nitrates to flow back into the Mar Menor. And some of the photos I've seen of the shoreline are pretty horrifying with this thick looking green water and piles and piles of dead fish. Mm. It's hideous. That is really super grim. So it sounds like this is a good thing that's happened this week, but like how does turning a lagoon into a legal person, like how is that actually helpful? Well, the lagoon now has legal protections. It has the right to exist as an ecosystem and to evolve naturally. And a group of caretakers will now have the responsibility to legally represent the water and hopefully defend the water from further degradation. The caretakers are made up of locals, scientists and some local officials. So they should hopefully be an effective group at defending this lagoon. But from what you've said, this sounds like pretty dire already, the state of the lagoon. Is is this going to be backed by like extra money or anything like that to help fix the problems? Yes, uh, you're absolutely right. There's a lot of hard work that's going to cost a lot of money um, and financial help is on its way. The government have promised 484 million euros to restore the lagoon by 2026. This is through initiatives like improving sewage systems, managing risks of flooding in the area and limiting what can be done with the land alongside the water. So hopefully things are looking up for this body of water that is so ecologically important for the area. It actually has this special status as a SPAMI, I love a good acronym, which stands for a specially protected area of Mediterranean importance. It's a pretty important biodiversity hotspot. I feel like I asked you this about last week's Good Week, but um, is this a world first, what's happening in Spain right now? No, it's not a world first. Um, And in fact, when I saw all the examples there were in North and South America, in Africa and Oceania, I wondered if actually Europe was a a bit behind, a bit late to the party in granting legal rights or personhood to natural bodies. Mm. So um, no, it's not a first, but it is a first for Europe and hopefully it will help I have to say, I do feel like a little bit icky about the fact that we have to personify things that aren't actually human in order to protect them legally. You always get very annoyed about anthropomorphizing things in general. Yeah, I do. I don't know why. (laughs) I don't really have a reason for it. And if it helps, I'm not going to complain. Okay. Who has had a bad week, Katie? I am going to give bad week to the women of Switzerland who are now going to have to work an extra year to claim their pensions. This is after a referendum at the weekend. As we all know, the Swiss are very into direct democracy. They hold a whole bunch of referendums every year. But this one was super close. It only just passed by 50.57%. And uh, it's the third time that the Swiss government has tried to get this reform pushed through. There were referendums on this in 2004 and 2017. Both times the voters said no. This time it was finally a yes vote. So what is the new age that Swiss women have to reach before getting their pensions? They will now need to be 65. Okay. That's quite like normal in European standards, right? It is, yeah. And for fans of this reform, they say, you know, this is fair because it means that women will finally have the same retirement age as men in Switzerland. They've previously been able to, you know, stop working a year earlier. Equality! So are the people who are arguing for the equality of retirement age saying it's fair because, I don't know, because women live longer? Typical man making that argument. Stop it! (laughs) It's not my argument. 
Um, one could argue that, yeah. Uh, so, like in most countries around the world, the average Swiss woman does live considerably longer than the average Swiss man. Uh, it's 85 for a woman, as opposed to 81 for a man. And the general argument amongst people who've backed this reform is, you know, everyone is living longer and the pension system is massively underfunded. You've got this huge generation of Swiss baby boomers about to retire, and a population that in general is aging. We need to do something about it. So that is the argument for making women work a little bit longer. And lots of countries have actually been moving towards this equality of pension age. Uh, Croatia, for example, has been raising women's retirement age in three-month increments. So by 2030, they'll have the same retirement age as men. Uh, Bulgaria is doing something similar. Presumably, there's also an argument that this isn't fair and that retirement age should not be equal and women should be allowed to retire a bit later. Uh, There is that argument, yeah. Um, Basically, everywhere, women earn less over a career than men. So we end up paying less into pension schemes and getting smaller payouts when we retire. Like Pension systems are designed around men. Women are also much more likely to live in poverty in their old age. And there are a few reasons for this, all of which will be familiar to you. Women are way more likely to take time out of the labour force to care for children or elderly relatives or take part-time jobs to fit in around family stuff. We aren't as represented in senior management positions, so we often get blocked from the cushy jobs that give you a big pension at the end. And there are, of course, also persistent cases of women just getting paid less to do exactly the same work as men, despite legislation we have against that kind of thing. Mm. Go figure. Um, All of these things combine to mean that Swiss women's pensions, on average, are 35% lower than men's pensions. So for the Swiss feminist groups who've campaigned against this reform, making women work an extra year feels really unfair because there are all of these structural reasons why women get paid less. A huge one being that, yeah, women bear a disproportionate burden of all of the unpaid work that gets done in society, like looking after children, which is work, by the way. Uh, So the Swiss feminists are arguing, you know, it's not unfair in principle for women to retire at the same age as men. Of course it isn't. But it is unfair to raise the retirement age for women without bringing in other measures to reduce the pay gap. And uh, they're very mad about this. There have been a couple of huge women's strikes in Switzerland in recent history. The most recent one was in 2019. Hundreds of thousands of women and some men took to the streets demanding gender equality. And feminists are now calling for a fresh women's strike next June. Uh, If it happens, it'll be quite a big deal because Switzerland doesn't really do strikes. Uh, They're pretty rare. So a mass walkout by women would be, yeah, quite a big thing. Are there any examples of countries where they have like successfully reformed the pension system to be a bit more fair and equal between the sexes? Uh, I don't know about how successfully, but there is a measure that tends to get used to try and address this. And it's something called caregiver credits. Uh, They have these in France and Germany and Sweden, just to name a few countries. And what it means is that if you take time out of the labour force to care for a child or an elderly relative or whatever, that gets taken into account when calculating your pension as you reach retirement age, which is obviously something that doesn't just benefit women, but it is disproportionately going to benefit women. Um, The other example of something kind of like this, but not really, uh, it's a very interesting one. I was talking to Wojciech, our producer, about pension reforms in Poland. Because if you remember, one of the things that got the right-wing ruling party elected back in 2015 was that they promised to reverse this really unpopular pension reform. Uh, The previous government had been gradually raising the retirement age for both men and women to 67. And Law and Justice, now the ruling party, they brought that back down, 65 for men and 60 for women. 
Uh, it's not often that I find myself feeling like I kind of agree with uh, Mateusz Morawiecki, who's now the prime minister. But at the time, he said it was fair that women should be able to retire earlier because they have more responsibilities, especially raising children. Um, I'm not sure if the two of us would agree that this should be women's roles necessarily, but here we are. Mm. Um, anyway, I want to say thank you very much to our listener, Anna Yorick, for drawing this story to our attention. Uh, we don't really tend to talk about women's status in retirement very much. So it felt good to delve into it this week. Uh, and if you spot a story that might not be on our radar, do give us a shout. We are all ears. You can drop us an email at hello at europeanspodcast.com. Big thanks to the latest group of listeners who have decided very kindly to join us on patreon.com and give us a bit of cash to keep this podcast up and running. Our thanks go out this week to Ashira Morris, Olivia Snyer, Bas Fichers, Owen Gower and Vesela Tabakova. If you want us to keep podcasting, then we'd be ever so grateful if you could give us a donation, however small, to keep this independent operation up and running. We don't have any structural funding other than from our Patreon, so it really makes all the difference as to whether we can keep making this show or not. On Patreon, you can give in many currencies. Certain currencies are heading towards total worthlessness right now, so why not throw some coins our way? <laughs> Shouldn't even laugh about it. Um, as a thanks for your donation, you get access to our lovely Facebook group with people from all over, and maybe even a personalised voice message from me and Dominic. All the info is at patreon.com forward slash Europeans podcast. If you can't afford to donate right now, the other next best thing you could do to help would be to tell a friend about the show or to talk about us on social media, preferably positively. <laughs> Growing our audience will also help ensure the continuity of this podcast in this fast changing world. Fast changing indeed. On which note, on to the main news of the week. Uh, it has probably not escaped your attention that the far-right politician Giorgia Meloni looks set to become Italy's prime minister. Her party, the Brothers of Italy, won about 26% of the vote in elections over the weekend. They did better than any other party. Although it's got to be said that her allies on the right did pretty badly. So it's a more complicated picture than a runaway right-wing victory. Together as a bloc, though, these parties got about 44% of the vote. So they can't claim to represent a majority of the country, but they certainly performed better than the left in terms of winning seats. Enough to have a go at forming a government. A very, very right-wing government. Uh, Maloney really, really doesn't like being called a fascist. Her party did grow out of a movement founded by Mussolini supporters after the war, and she has very hardline views on issues like migration and abortion and LGBTQ rights. But in spite of all of this, Maloney has spent a lot of time trying to present herself as a mainstream electable conservative, pretty successfully it seems. Uh, those of you who heard us talking about the Swedish far right doing well in the election a couple of weeks ago may be spotting some overlap here. But anyway, how did we get here? And what does an Italy led by Maloney mean for the rest of Europe? Well, we thought it would be a good week to get a philosophical perspective. Lorenzo Marsili is a philosopher. And as the founder of the progressive civil society movement, European Alternatives, he's someone who tends to think beyond national borders. He seemed like the perfect person to call up this week. Giorgia Meloni would be the fourth prime minister of Italy since we started this podcast, which is less than five years ago. Why do you think Italian politics is so perennially unstable? 
Yes, in five years of podcasts, you probably have seen plenty of Italian prime ministers coming and going. Um, I guess there are at least two questions. One is that the Italian electoral system and the institutional tradition of the country makes it so that majorities are made and unmade in parliament rather repeatedly. Elections tend to happen once every five years only, but within those five years, majorities shift inside of the parliament as parties group and regroup to support different prime ministers that privilege one side or another side of their majority. But I think what's more interesting is to notice how in the last 20 years, really, uh, Italian politics has been marked by a rather stable cycle of extremism and technocracy. There is a dysfunctional economy, a worsening living standards for a majority of people, young people in particular, that leads to the search for an extremist or populist answer, an anti-establishment answer, sometimes a very easy, simplified answer uh, that leads to the election of people like Salvini or the Five Star earlier on, now Meloni. Then these people prove incapable of governing. The technocrats come back, whether that's Mario Draghi most recently or Mario Monti earlier on. The technocrats are disliked, and then the cycle starts again with the election of a new extremist leader. We have to see whether Meloni's tenure will be another instance of this fast-turning machine of technocracy and populism, or whether she's onto something more stable for once. Why do you think so many Italian voters have started seeing Meloni's party as attractive? The first thing to say, also to safeguard the, the, the honor of Italians abroad, is that actually a majority of the electorate voted for liberal or left-wing parties. But despite actually having a majority in the overall votes, the progressive field has a minority in parliament. But certainly there is a fascination towards Giorgia Meloni. In part, this is really a transformation of the votes that used to go to Matteo Salvini. So that part of Italy that wants a strong man, in this case, a strong woman who dislikes the multiculturality represented by European integration, that part of Italy that privileges a certain level of tax evasion, what would go by the name of a state that doesn't interfere with individuals, but then in Italy this means that you can evade taxes. And that type of 20-30% um, of the electorate has always been there, and it's just been shifting from one leader to the next. Salvini lost his appeal by supporting the government of Mario Draghi over the last couple of years, and his electorate has, in good part, shifted to Giorgia Meloni. Salvini went down from 30-plus percent to 9%. Meloni went up from 9% to 27%. There is then some part of those who used to believe in the anti-establishment credentials of the Five Star Movement, who have seen the Five Star transformed into a more traditional political party, also supporting the government of Mario Draghi. And this is the type of electoral that is not necessarily right-wing. Uh, they may not have a problem with uh, civil liberties, with migrants, with multiculturality, with the European Union even, but they certainly feel that the system is rigged, that there is an economic establishment that keeps on producing failed economic policies that only benefit those better off, and they keep on being left at the margins of society and at the, at the margins of uh, a lackluster economic development. And so they try to find a figure that would transform that center ground, would transform that establishment. And a few years ago, it would have been the Five Star Movement. Now, uh, in the eyes of many, this figure is Giorgia Meloni. So it's really a mix 
of a traditional right-wing inclination of some and an inclination of anything but the status quo of others. And how would you describe her ideologically? I, I find she's often described as post-fascist, and I find that a kind of a terrifying phrase, but also somewhat vague. Um, how much of her ideology is actually rooted in fascism, do you think? Well, look, if you scout in her past, and even more so in some of the individuals that populate her, her political party, you will certainly find uh, some flirting with a language or uh, aesthetic of fascism. But uh, to be honest, I think all this conversation that really interested commentators on fascism, neo-fascism, post-fascism, entirely misses the point. I have an article in The Guardian now on this question where essentially I say that she is not so much the heir to Benito Mussolini's fascist movement as much as the best and first European copycat of the United States Republican Party. She's really a representative of the slightly perverted right wing that takes really aim at civil liberties, including women's rights, paradoxically for the first woman prime minister in Italy, that takes a strong stance against migrants, uh, has a problem with multiculturality, but in the end is actually rather orthodox economically. It's neoliberal. It's uh, reducing taxation on those better off, on corporation, and rather hawkish in foreign policy. Uh, Meloni went out of her way to show to the current U.S. administration how anti-China she is, how pro-U.S. she is. So I think the, the accusations of fascism have some merits, yes, but unfortunately, she's not a fascist mimicry, a very short-lived carnival of excess in a funny country such as Italy, I think she's on to something more stable. She's really the sign of a degeneration of the right-wing space in the European Union and the transformation of that space into something closer to the Trumpian Republican Party. And along with this transformation on the right, we've also seen the left in Italy well, not really managing to get its act together in this election. Why do you think that is? At least in Italy, they're all boys. And being all boys, they have an excessive narcissistic ego that leads them to act in utterly uncooperative ways one towards the other. I don't think Giorgia Meloni has won the elections. It's the progressive field that enabled Giorgia Meloni to secure a majority. So in the country, you actually have a left liberal majority, not a right-wing majority. But then there is an electoral law that is a hybrid that includes 50% of the seats being handed out in a first-past-the-post system. This means that in a small constituency, only the one most voted candidate gets elected. And you can make alliances in those constituencies. That means that any electorate in any constituency finds on the one side a single candidate supported by the whole right-wing alliance, and against this person, three different candidates each representing one of the three souls of the left progressive field. So, of course, mathematics leads to the fact that nearly 80 or 90 percent of these first-past-the-poll uh, constituencies have been won by the united right just because they were united, not because they had more votes than the left liberals. And there has been this completely childish, narcissistic game of reciprocal vetoes where the Democratic Party placed a veto on the Five Star Movement because they're too left, because they didn't like Mario Draghi enough, 
And then the liberals placed a veto on the Democrats, saying that the Democrats are too left. They even made an alliance with the Green Party, who wants to stop digging gas and oil in Italy. This is despicable. We cannot be allied with them. And so this fragmentation is what led to the situation we're in. If they had been united, Italy would now have a left liberal government instead of that of Giorgio Meloni. So I think they have a huge responsibility. And how do you think having Meloni as Prime Minister of Italy is going to shape politics on a European level over the coming years? Well, of course, there is a danger, a very realistic danger, that the process of European integration gets halted or at least significantly slowed down at a very crucial time. So we're beginning to see the power that a united Europe could have, and there are encouraging conversations now taking place, for example, with the removal of unanimity vote in some policy areas, like foreign policy or taxation, which would be amazing. It would really give Europe a strong voice in the world, a strong capacity to protect its citizens. And the risk here is that, of course, Giorgia Meloni is friends with Viktor Orban. She's friends with the Polish nationalists now in power in Warsaw, and she would get their back. They would be protecting one another and altogether vetoing a virtuous integration of the European Union. This is the baseline scenario. This is what, unfortunately, should happen, given all that she has been saying and all that the right wing has been representing in Europe and and elsewhere. Likewise, of course, the second impact is going to be a normalization of the far right. Italy is not Hungary. Hungary, it's a rather small country, ultimately a country that's considered to be a lost cause now in most European countries. Italy is the third largest economy and country of the European Union. It's a founding state of the EU. It has quite a lot of soft and cultural power worldwide, actually. The fact that it is led by a far-right government, especially if this far-right government doesn't prove like a crazy fascist carnival, but a rather sustainable right-wing, Trumpian perhaps in style, but not completely crazy, then this would really normalize the idea that it's actually not so dangerous if people like Vox in Spain enter government next year or people like Le Pen in France have a chance at going for the presidency. Because look at Italy, actually, it hasn't exploded. Uh, There aren't uh, pogroms or concentration camps or people going around the street looking for migrants to attack. It's still a relatively functional country. So maybe this political space of the center-right can have a right of residence in the larger European family. I think this normalization is also the greater threat. So there are these two risks for Europe. They're not certain. It's still possible that Giorgia Meloni, who is ultimately interested in cementing her power, understands that it's in her interest to back up some element of European reform and progress in order not to antagonize Berlin and Paris and Brussels. And also because, frankly, it's in the national interest of Italy to have a stronger EU, although I'm not sure she gets to the point of understanding this. And maybe, maybe uh, it won't be as bad as we expect the impact to be, but certainly there is that danger there. Thank you very much to Lorenzo for joining us. He is a really interesting person to follow on Twitter. If you're there, you can find him at L underscore Marsili. 
Uh, while you're there, if you need cheering up after this very depressing election, several of our listeners have recommended the Twitter account Crazy Ass Moments in Italian Politics. Uh, as one of our listeners, Allegra, wrote on our Patreon Facebook group, the account is depressing for us, but I guess absurdly funny for anyone else. Uh, right now at the top of the feed, there is a video of Georgia Maloney holding some melons. Mm. Enjoy. What have you been enjoying this week? Well, we are about as far away from a Eurovision Song Contest as we can be. Um, boo. Boo. But I'm still going to find a way to make this isolation inspiration slightly about Eurovision because there okay. is one artist who has stayed in my Spotify rotation many months after the latest Eurovision competition. And it's the Portuguese singer Maro. And her song Saudade, Saudade finished in a respectable but not mind-blowing ninth place. But I know various other people like me who really liked that song and dived into her back catalogue and continued listening to her music, actually including our producer Wojciech as well. She writes really beautiful songs and has a really rich voice that I think is gorgeous. Last week, my sister sent me a great song of hers from back in 2018. It's called Flying to L.A., and it's about a bird that's going to fly off to L.A. just after crossing Morrow's path and the kind of sad feelings about that. But it was too late Cause you were flying to L.A. I think the bird is a metaphor for someone she's fallen for. It's a very sweet song with great vocal harmonies, um, just like her Eurovision song. And actually, it reminded me lyrically of another of my absolute favorite songs of the past few years. Another song about someone leaving for L.A., James Blake's I'll Come To, a song about him wanting to go wherever the person he's singing about is going. He'll go. And I don't know if you know the song, but this, the lyrics are so sweetly needy. At first, he thinks she's going to New York. So he's going there too. Oh, you've changed to L.A. I'm going there. I could go there too. And I find both these songs really touching and found it a bit weird to realize that I'm really into songs about people or birds moving to LA from Europe, a very specific genre, but it seems musically fruitful. Very specific genre. Also, our guest this week, Lorenzo, was just back from LA. He's a bird who's returned home, Dominic, so it can go the other way too. There we go. Such musical richness around this topic. Um, anyway, what have you been enjoying? Uh, I wanted to recommend a book that I enjoyed during our summer break, which is Broken Greek. It's a new-ish memoir by Pete Perfides. It came out a few months ago. Um, if you don't know who Pete Perfides is, he is a fairly well-known rock music critic in the UK. And Broken Greek is his memoir of growing up in a Greek Cypriot family in Birmingham, England. His parents ran a fish and chip shop. And the book is a memoir about growing up, yeah, kind of feeling like he didn't belong, like neither feeling properly Greek or properly British, which is a feeling that lots of people from immigrant families will recognize, I think. I know I did. And uh, yeah, it's just a really enjoyable book. I've always really liked how Pete Perfides writes about pop music as a proper art form that deserves celebration and serious criticism. And this book is about him discovering pop as this very anxious child and how all of these songs just opened a, a glorious world of escape away from the chip shop for him. And the other nice thing about this book is that Perfides has, of course, prepared a Spotify playlist of every single song mentioned in this memoir, more than 600 songs. Uh, it's mostly English language pop, but there's some Greek songs in there that I found very fun to discover. 
And because it's a book set in the 70s, there is a lot of ABBA, which I know you'll enjoy, Dominic. I'm actually not the biggest ABBA fan. Are you not? I shouldn't have been that on podcast, no. Why did I think you were? I don't know. But I mean, I, I go in and out of it. Sometimes I'm like, yeah, I love ABBA. And other times I'm like, no, enough. Please stop it. Time to head back in. I have a happy train ending for you this week because this enormous 870 kilometer long rail Baltica project is now officially underway. It will connect the capitals of Poland, Lithuania, Latvia and Estonia with a potential ferry extension to Finland. It's enormous and of course very expensive, um, but it's creating a ton of jobs in its construction alone. Apparently 3,000 direct full-time jobs are being created, according to the article I read in Euronews, and another 24,000 indirect jobs. And it's going to be a very speedy train. It will go at speeds of up to 234 kilometers per hour, meaning that you should be able to get from Vilnius to Tallinn in about three and a half hours, which is much faster than you can at the moment. I I googled it and apparently at the moment, if you're going by car, if I was setting off around now, it would take me seven hours and 20 minutes. So it's quite a big improvement. That's going to be so fun. I can't wait to take that train. Imagine the views out the window. I know we should do it. We'll have to wait a few years because it's expected to be completed in phases between 2026 and 2030. Oh, I'll wait. We will be back next week with more Tales of This European Life. Uh, But between episodes, you are very welcome to come and hang out with us on the internet, specifically the picture website, Instagram, where we can be found at Europeans Podcast and Twitter, where Europeans Pod. Big thanks to our producers of this episode, Katie Lee, my co-host, and Wojciech Oleksiak. Kat Slaslo, our other producer, is off making some very exciting stories. Also thanks to our jingle man, Jim Barn, and to the composer of the special ancient conch shell outro to the (laughs) Patreon music, which was given to us by our amazing Patreon supporter, Mariska Martina. Thank you, Mariska. If you're hungry for more pan-European stories, go check out our friends at Are We Europe. They've got a new issue of their magazine out. It is all about drugs. You can find out more at areweeurope.com. Ciao. See you next week. Bis später.